The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter Twenty Nine, Spring Spinning Salt Mine. I can hardly describe our joy when, after my many tedious and gloomy weeks of rain, the sky began to brighten, the sun to dart its benign rays on the human earth, the winds to be lulled, and the state of the air became mild and serene. We issued from our dreary hovels with joyful shouts and walked around our habitation, breathing the enlivening balmy ether, while our eyes were regaled. While、well, our eyes were regaled with the beauteous verdure beginning to shoot forth on every side, reviving nature, cut about a foot in depth, we could loosen it with a spade like dried mud. This determined me to proceed with double ardor, and my boys assisted me with a spirit and zeal beyond their years. After a few days of assiduous labor, we measured the opening and found we had already advanced seven feet into the rock. Fritz removed the fragments in a barrow and discharged them in a line before the place to form a sort of terrace. I applied my own labor to the upper part to enlarge the aperture. Jack, the smallest of the three, was able to get in and cut away below. We had he had with him a long iron bar sharpened to the end, which he drove in with a hammer to loosen a piece at a time. Suddenly he bawled out, "It is pierced through, father! Fritz, I have pierced it through!" Ha ha, Master Jack! At his jokes again. Let us hear. What have you pierced? Is it the mountain? Not for her.、Uh, venture your hand or foot, Jack! Cried I. Jack, no, no! It is the mountain. The rocks resounding with his usual shout of joy. Huzza, huzza! I have pierced the mountain. Fritz now ran to him. Come, let us see. Then it is no doubt the globe. At least you have pierced. Said he in a bantering tone, "You should have pushed on your tool boldly till you reached Europe, which they say is under our feet. I should have been glad to peep into that hole." Jack, "Well then, peep you may, but I hardly know what you will see. Come and look how far the iron is going in, and tell me if it is all my boasting." "Come hither, father," said Fritz. "This is really extraordinary. His iron bar seems to have got to a hollow place. See, it can be moved in every direction." I approached, thinking the incident worth attention. I took hold of the bar, which was still in the rock, and working it about, I made a sufficient aperture for one of my sons to pass. And I observed that, in reality, the rubbish fell within the cavity, which I judged from the falling of the stones was not much deeper than the part we stood on. My two lads offered to go in together and examine it. This, however, I forbade. I even made them remove from the opening, as I smelled the mephitic. Air that issued abundantly from it, and began myself to feel giddiness in consequence of having gone too near, so that I was compelled to withdraw quickly and inhale purer air. Beware, my dear children," said I, in terror of entering such places, for the loss of life might be the consequence. Jack, how can that be, father? Father, because the air is mephitic, that is foul, and therefore unfit for breathing in. Jack, how does air become mephitic? Father, in very different ways. For example, when it is replete with noxious vapors, or when it contains too much indigenous or inflammable particles, or when it is too heavy or dense, as fixed air is. But in general, when it merely loses its elasticity and no longer passes freely into the lungs, respiration is then stopped and suffocation speedily ensues, because air is indispensable to life and the circulation of the blood. Jack, then all to be done is. To be off quickly when one feels a stoppage of breath, 
father. This is certainly the natural course when it can be taken, but the attack usually begins by vertigo or dizziness of the head so violent as to intercept motion, which is followed by an insurmountable oppression. Efforts are made to breathe, fainting follows, and without speedy help, a sudden death takes place. Fritz, what assistance can be administered? Father, the first thing to be done is to remove the person so affected to pure, fresh air and to throw cold water over his body. He must then be well dried and afterwards rubbed with warm cloths. Vital air must be infused or tobacco smoke thrown up. In short, he must be treated like a drowned person till signs of reanimation appear, which is not always the result. Fritz, but why do you think, Father, the air in this cavern is methotic, as you term it, or dangerous to breathe in? Father, all air confined and wholly separated from that of the atmosphere gradually loses its elasticity and can no longer pass through the lungs. In this state, it generates injurious qualities that interrupt the process of respiration. It is in this act that the atmospheric air diffused around us unites intimately with the blood to which it communicates. One of its most opened her arms. Every creature seemed reanimated, and we felt the genial influence of that glorious luminary which had been so long concealed from our sight, and now returned like a friend who had been absent to bring us back blessings and delight. We rapidly forgot in new sensations the embarrassments and weary hours of that wet season, and with jocund, hopeful hearts, looked forward to the toils of summer as inviolable amusements. The vegetation of our plantation of trees was rapidly advancing. The seed we had thrown into the ground was sprouting in slender blades that waved luxuriantly. A pleasing, tender foliage adorned the trees. The earth was enameled with an infinite variety of flowers, whose agreeable tints diversified the verdure of the meadows. Odorous exhalations were diffused through the atmosphere. The song of the birds was heard around. They were seen between the leaves, joyfully fluttering from branch to branch. Their various forms and brilliant plumage heightened this delightful picture of spring, and we were at once struck with wonder and penetrated with gratitude towards the creator of so many beauties. Under these impressions we celebrated the ensuing Sunday in the open air, and if possible, with stronger emotions of piety than heretofore. The blessings which surrounded us were ample compensation for some e uneasy moments which had occasionally intervened, and our hearts filled with fresh zeal were resolved to be resigned, if it should be the will of God, to pass the residue of our days in this solitude with serenity of soul. The force of paternal feelings, no doubt, made me sometimes form other wishes for my children, but these I buried in my own breast for fear of disturbing my tranquility. But if I secretly indulged a desire for some event that might prolong and even increase their happiness, I nevertheless wholly submitted all to the divine will. Our summer occupations commenced by arranging and thoroughly cleaning Falcon's Nest, the order and neatness of which the rain and dead leaves blown by the wind had disturbed. In other respects, however, it was not injured, and in a few days we rendered it fit for our reception. 
The stairs were cleared, the rooms between the roots reoccupied, and we were left with leisure to proceed to other employments. My wife lost not a moment in resuming the process of her flax. Our sons hastened to lead the cattle to the fresh pastures, whilst it was my task to carry the bundles of flax into the open air, where, by heaping stones together, I contrived an oven sufficiently commodious to dry it well. The same evening we all set to work to peel, and afterwards to beat it and strip off the bark, and lastly to comb it with my carding machine, which fully answered the purpose. I took this laborious task on myself, and drew out such distaffs full of long, soft flax ready for spinning, that my enraptured wife ran to embrace me to express her thankfulness, requesting me to make her a will without delay, that she might enter upon her favorite work. At an early period of my life I had practiced turnery for my amusement. Now, however, I was unfortunately destitute of the requested utensils. But as I had not forgotten the arrangement and component parts of a spinning wheel and reel, I by repeated endeavors found means to accomplish those two machines to her satisfaction, and she fell so eagerly to spinning as to allow herself no leisure even before a walk, and scarcely time to dress our dinners. Nothing so much delighted her as to be left with her little boy, whom she employed to reel as fast as she could spin, and sometimes the other three were also engaged in turns at the wheel to forward her business while she was occupied in culinary offices. But not one of them was found so tactable as the cool-tempered, quiet earnest who preferred this to more laborious exertions. Our first visit was to Tent House, and here we found the ravages of winter, more considerable than even at Falcon Stream. The tempest and rain had beaten down the tent, carried away a part of the sailcloth, and made such havoc amongst our provisions that by far the largest portion was spotted with mildew, and the remainder could be only saved by drying them instantly. Luckily, our handsome Panassi had been for the most part spared. It was still at anchor, ready to serve us in case of need, but our tub-boat was in too shattered a state to be of our any further service. In looking over the stores, we were grieved to find the gunpowder, of which I had left three barrels in the tent, the most damaged. The contents of two were rendered wholly useless. I thought myself fortunate on finding the remaining one in tolerable condition, and derived from this great and irreparable loss a cognate motive to fix upon winter quarters, where our stores, or our only wealth, would not be exposed to such cruel dilapidations. Fritz and Jack were constant in their endeavors to make me undertake the excavation in the rock, but I had no hopes of success. Robinson Crusoe found a spacious cavern that merely required arrangement. No such cavity was apparent in our rock, which bore the aspect of extreme solidity and impenetrableness, so that, with our limited powers, three or four summers would scarcely suffice to execute the design. Still the earnest desire of a more substantial habitation to defend us from the elements perplexed me incessantly, and I resolved to make at least the attempt of cutting out a recess that should protect the gunpowder, the most valuable of all our treasures. I accordingly set off one day, accomplished by my two boys, leaving their mother at their, her spinning with Ernest and Francis. We took with us pickaxes, chisels, hammers, and iron levers to try what impression we could make on the rock. I chose a part nearly perpendicular and much better situated than our tent. The view from it was enchanting, for it embraced the whole range of Safety Bay, the banks of Jackal Stream and Family Bridge, and many of the picturesque projections of the rocks. 
I marked out with charcoal the opening we wished to make, and we began the heavy toil of piercing the quarry. We made so little progress the first day that in spite of our courage we were tempted to relinquish the undertaking. We persevered, however, and my hope was somewhat revived as I perceived the stone was of a softer texture as we penetrated deeper. I concluded from this that the ardent rays of the sun striking upon the rock had hardened the external layer and that the stone within would increase in softness as we advanced. And it occurred to me that the substance might be a species of calcareous stone when essential parts called vital air, for without it life cannot be supported. This air, failing respiration, ceases and death succeeds in a few minutes. The consequence is similar when this air is impregnated too abundantly with injurious parts. Fritz, and by what is good air known? How judge that one may respire freely at a few paces from this mephitic cave? Father, this becomes evident when inspiration and expiration are performed with ease. Besides, there is an infallible test. Fair does not burn in foul air, yet it is made the means of correcting it. We must light a fire of sufficient strength in this hole to purify the air within and render it friendly to respiration. At first the bad air will extinguish the fire, but by degrees the fire in its turn will expel the bad air and burn freely. Fritz, oh, that will be an easy manner. The boys now hastened to gather some dry moss, which they made into bundles. They then struck a light and set fire to them and threw the moss blazing into the opening, but as I had described, the fire was extinguished at the very entrance, thus proving that the air within was highly mephitic. I now saw that it was to be rarefied by another and more effectual method. I recollected that we had brought from the vessel a chest that was full of grenades, rockets, and other fireworks, which had been shipped for the purpose of making signals, as well as for amusement. I sought it hastily, and took some of these together with an iron mortar for throwing. Out of it I laid a train of gunpowder and set fire to the end which reached to where we stood. A general explosion took place, and an awful report reverberated through the dark recess. The lighter grenades flew out on all sides like brilliant meters reopening and bursting with a terrific sound. We then sent in the rockets, which had also a full effect. They hissed in the cavity like flying dragons, disclosing to our astonished view its vast extent. We beheld, too, as we thought, numerous dazzling bodies that sparkled suddenly as if by magic and disappeared with a rapidity of lightning, leaving the place in total darkness. A squib bursting in the form of a star presented a spectacle we wished to be prolonged. After having played off our fireworks, I tried lighted straw. To our great satisfaction, the bundles thrown in were entirely consumed. We could then reasonably hope nothing was to be feared from the air, but there still remained the danger of plunging into some abyss or of meeting with a body of water. From these considerations, I deemed it more prudent to defer our entrance into this unknown recess till we had lights to guide us through it. I dispatched Jack on the buffalo to Falcon Stream to tell his mother and brothers of our discovery, directing him to return with them and bring all the tapers that were left. My intention was to tie them together to the end of a stick and proceed with it lighted to examine the cavity. I had not sent Jack on his embassy without a meaning. The boy possessed from nature a lively imagination. I knew he would tell his mother such wonders of the 
grotto of the fireworks and all they had brought to our view, that he would induce her to accompany him without delay and bring us lights to penetrate the obscure sanctuary. Jack, overjoyed, sprang on the buffalo, gaily smacked so boldly that I almost trembled for his safety. The intrepid boy was unencumbered by fear and made a complete racehorse of his porn brucephalus. In three or four hours, we saw them coming up in our car of state, which was now drawn by the cow and the ass and conducted by Ernest. Francis, too, played his part in the cavalcade and contended contended with his brother for the ropes that served as reins. Jack mounted on his buffalo, came prancing before them, blew through his closed hand in imitation of the French horn, and now and then whipped the ass and cow to quicken their motion. When they had crossed Family Bridge, he came forward on the gallop. But when he got to us, jumped off, the beast shook himself, took a spring or two from the ground, and thus refreshed, ran up to the car to hand his mother out like a true and gallant knight. I immediately lighted some of the tapers, but not together as I had intended. I preferred each taking one in his right hand, an implement in his left, another taper in his pocket, flint and steel, and thus we entered the rock in solemn procession. I took the lead. My sons followed me, and their beloved mother with the youngest brought up the rear. The interest and curiosity she felt were not unalloyed with tender apprehensions, and indeed I felt myself that sort of fear which an unknown object is apt to excite. Even our dogs that accompanied us betrayed some timidity, did not run before as usual, but we had scarcely advanced four paces within the grotto, and all was changed to more than admiration and surprise. The most beautiful and magnificent spectacle presented itself. The sides of the cavern sparkled like diamonds. The light from our six tapers was reflected from all parts and had the effect of a grand illumination. Innumerable crystals of every length and shape hung from the top of the vault, which, uniting with those of the sides, formed pillars, altars, and tablatures, and a variety of other figures composing the most splendid masses. We might have fancied ourselves in the palace of a fairy or an illuminated temple. Some places all the colors of the prism were emitted from the angles of the crystals and gave them the appearance of the finest precious stones. The waving of the lights, their bright consecrations, black points here and there intervening the dazzling luster of others. The whole in short delighted and enchanted the sight and the fancy. The astonishment of my family was so great as to be almost ludicrous. They were all in a kind of dumb stupor, half imagining it was a dream. For my own part, I had seen stalactites and read the description of the famous grotto by of Antiparis. My sensations, therefore, were not the same. The bottom was level, covered with a white and very fine sand, as if purposely strewed and so dry that I could not see the least mark of humidity anywhere. All this led me to hope the spot would be healthy, convenient, and eligible for our proposed residence. I now formed a particular conjecture as to the nature of the crystallizations, shooting out on all sides and especially from the arch roof. They could scarcely be of that species of rock crystals produced by the slow filtering of water falling in drops and coagulating in succession, and seldom found in excavations exhibiting so dry a nature, nor even with so many of the crystals perpendicular and perfectly smooth. 
I was impatient to evince the truth or falsehood of this idea by an experiment and discovered with great joy on breaking a portion of one of them that I was in a grotto of sal gem that is fossil or rock salt found in the earth in solid crystallized masses generally above a bed of spar or gypsum and surrounded by layers of fossils or rock. The discovery of this fact, which no longer emitted a doubt, pleased us all exceedingly. The shape of crystals, their little solidity, and finally their saline taste were decisive evidences. How highly advantageous to us in our cattle was this superabundance of salt, pure and ready to be shoveled out for use, and preferable in all respects to what we collected on the shore, which required to be refined. As we advanced in the grotto, remarkable figures formed by the saline matter everywhere presented themselves. Columns reaching from the bottom to the top of the vault appeared to sustain it, and some even had cornices and capitals. Here and there undulating masses, which at certain distances resembled the sea. From the variegated and whimsical forms we beheld fancy might make a thousand creations at its pleasure, windows, large open cupboards, benches, church ornaments, grotesque figures of men and animals, some like polished crystals or diamonds, others like blocks of alabaster. We viewed with unwearied curiosity this repository of wonders, and we had all lighted our second taper when I observed on the ground in some places a number of crystal fragments that seemed to have fallen off from the upper part. Such a separation might recur and expose us to danger. A piece falling on any of our heads might prove instantly fatal, but on closer inspection I was convinced they had not dropped of themselves spontaneously. The whole mass was too solid for fragments of that size to have been so detached from it, and had dampness loosened them, they would have dissolved gradually. I concluded they were broken off by the concussion caused by the explosion of our artillery and fireworks, and I thought it, thought it prudent to retire as other loosened pieces might unexpectedly fall on us. I directed my wife and three of the children to place themselves in the entrance while Fritz and I carefully examined every part that threatened danger. We loaded our guns with ball and fired them into the center of the cavern to be more fully assured of what produced the separation of the former pieces. One or two more fell, the rest remained immovable, though we went round with long poles and struck all we could reach. We at length felt confident that in point of solidity there was nothing to fear and that we might proceed without dread of accident. Loud exclamations, projects, consultations now succeeded to our mute astonishment. Many schemes were formed for converting this magnificent quoto into a convenient and agreeable mansion for our abode. We had possession of the most eligible premises. The sole business was to turn them to the best account, and how to effect this was our unceasing thing. Some voted for our immediate establishment there, but they were opposed by more sagacious counsel, and it was resolved that Falcon Stream should still be our headquarters till the end of the year.